Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, a place for gathering conversations on living well and wisely along the journey with Jesus. I'm Casey Tiger, and I'm your host. I'm a pastor and writer. Today, I'm really excited because our guest today is my friend James Brian Smith. Um, he also goes by Jim Smith or Smitty. Uh, we'll talk about that in the episode. But James Brian Smith is a professor of theology at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, beautiful Wichita. He is also the director of the Apprentice Institute, uh, which is a spiritual formation institute based out of Friends University, where they have degree programs in spiritual formation, which is awesome. Uh, He also is one of the founding members of something called Renovare, which if you're familiar with Richard Foster or uh, Dallas Willard's work, uh, it was a big part of the early years of spiritual formation in the U.S. Uh, Jim is really, really interesting because he's one of the few people I could say is incredibly intelligent and is incredibly funny as well and is a real down-to-earth guy. And uh, we're going to talk about some practical things related to wisdom and also our stories uh, and how that relates. How does our story and the story God is telling, uh, how does it relate to uh, wisdom and what we do with everyday life? And so that's the interview that's coming up. So that's going to come up shortly. His, His book that's out right now that I would encourage you to check out on Amazon or IVP or Target or Walmart or wherever you get your books is called The Magnificent Story. The Magnificent Story, and it is well worth your read. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce James Brian Smith. Jim, my friend, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Casey. So glad you're here. Hey, what most people don't know about you, and I find hilarious and fascinating, is that you love to give people um, nicknames. I do. I like do. Tish, Tish Harrison Warren was at this uh, the conference, the Apprentice Gathering that you put on at Friends, yeah. which is fantastic. And she ended up being T-Dub, T-dub. Uh, by the end of it. But I, I thought this would be a good time for me to tell you that I've always had a nickname for you mm. when I'm referring to you t- to other people. Yeah. Um, I always call you JBS. Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like a gangster rap name, and I know secretly that's something that you've longed for your it whole is. life. It is. Not many, <laughs> not many people know that. <laughs> but to be fair, I call John the Baptist JTB, so I put you guys kind of in the same category. Oh, I'll but take that. Yes, yeah. JBS is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, um, the point of the podcast is uh, we're just talking about wisdom and how wisdom fits in daily life. So I want to start you out with a softball, if I can, and just say... From your experience, uh, if you were going to craft a definition of wisdom, where would you start? Well, I would start with uh, the good Dr. Willard, who was the master of defining terms. And I didn't know that when I started working with Dallas. uh, But I noticed after a while, like, he's defining things differently than other people do. And we think grace, and grace means, you know, unmerited forgiveness. But for Dallas, grace means God's action in our life. We think eternal life means what happens after you die, but for Dallas, it's a quality of life now. On and on and on. So when it comes to wisdom, Dallas's definition of wisdom um, is the knowledge of how to live well. And I like that. It's really succinct. And, um, of course, if you understand that, you have to understand what he means by knowledge. And, and so he has a definition of knowledge. And knowledge is the ability to represent something in an appropriate manner, meaning that you understand something. Uh 
for example, I, I understand tennis pretty well. I played it since I was six. I played in high school and college. I coached it for seven years. I'm a teaching pro. So if you ask me things about tennis, I have experiential knowledge of tennis. I can explain, you say, how do you hold a Western grip? I can show you, right? So that, so Dallas for Dallas, knowledge isn't head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge based on um, your ability to grasp something. So if you put that together, so it's the knowledge and experiential relational knowledge of how to live well, that's a, that's a pretty good definition of wisdom. Man. Well, that's interesting because the, we were just talking about the work that you have done in spiritual formation. And if, if you're listening and you haven't read the Apprentice series, The Good and Beautiful God, The Good and Beautiful Life, and The Good and Beautiful Community, they are fantastic books on not only formation, but, but wisdom, like in the way that we're talking about, which is exactly how Dallas defined it. Um, you, you really bring that down into a level. Dallas always lived at this level where we all sort of were inspired. But what I love about what you've done is you've brought that down to the practical level. So for you, as you look at it through the lens of apprenticeship, this idea of becoming a learner or a disciple of Jesus, how do you see that wisdom definition that you have and that Dallas has used? How do you see those two things fitting together with this apprentice idea? I see it fitting perfectly, Casey, because what Jesus teaches is actually true. And so my, my definition of truth is that which is in accordance with reality or that which you can count on. So um, I pretty much count on gravity every day. I, I rely on it. I expect it. It works for me. Um, and so I can like think, I don't believe in gravity, but it actually, that doesn't matter. It actually is reality. So I have to work with that. In the same sense, when Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, he's actually right. And it actually is true. And so um, it's not just a nice idea. Like, oh, that's nice. Let's put it on a, on a greeting card or something. It, it, it's, it's in accordance with reality. So as I give, I'm participating into the life of God because God is self-giving. And the nature of life is to be self-giving or self-sacrificing for the good of another. Uh, and interestingly enough, Casey, the other day I was reading a study <laughs> about physical well-being in the brain, and it turns out that when we uh, engage in acts of kindness towards others, our brain responds well, our body responds well. Physiologically, things are happening in the human body that enhance our well-being, like our blood pressure goes down and, and our things that make for bad cholesterol goes away. It's just weird that you think, Okay, he actually is right. Jesus is right. It works. So if I'm going to be his apprentice, I'm stepping into wisdom because his way is always going to be right. Yeah. So what I what I notice about this is a lot of times when we talk about um, in the books in the apprentice series, you talk about spiritual practices, and especially in the context of what you call true narratives and false narratives. So that just you know, basically means there's a story of God that some of us have been taught that may be false and the scary shaming story of God. And I even saw evidence of that this last week, a a tweet from a certain um, blog about uh, how doubt is an affront to God and uh, just you should feel ashamed if you doubt. And so uh, that scary shaming story, that narrative is still out there. But the true narrative is this uh, story that Jesus has told. And so when we talk about wisdom, a lot of times we want to think about it in very neutral terms, like we're doing it in a lab. 
So one of the key stories for you in the beginning of The Good and Beautiful God is the experience you had uh, with your child and the experience of having to act wisely and learn wisdom in a situation that's very difficult. And so I imagine people who are listening to this would really benefit from hearing, if you don't mind, that story and how you how you began to sense this new story of Jesus coming through that particular experience. Right. Yeah. Well, um, my wife and I, our second child, uh, Madeline, she was born with a chromosomal disorder, um, translocation for those who are medical people out there. <clears throat> but, um, in the midst of that, we had to sort of reconcile. Now, how is it that we who are, we're Christians, we're believers, we, we were dedicated to Christ, uh, and his church. Uh, how can this happen to us? You know, this bad thing that we have a child with, with special needs and so forth. And, what we discovered in the midst of it is there were many Christians who actually would say things to us as sort of to the effect of, what did you do that made God do this to you? I mean, what did you do that caused God to give you a child who's sick with a congenital disease? And, you know, that's when you have to sort of sit back and say, whoa, well, where does that narrative come from? Turns out it's actually a very old narrative. Uh, it, it, go back to the book of Job. Right? Job is suffering and all his friends can say is, what did you do, Job? And you find that you walk through the scriptures and even up to, to Jesus and his disciples, when they come upon the man born blind, John five, I think it is, or is it nine anyway? Uh, and his disciples say, so rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that would cause this condition of his now. So Jesus has an opportunity to affirm that narrative. He could say, well, it was his parents. They were really sinful. They, 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 they didn't tithe or something. Um, and, and he has this opportunity to affirm that narrative. Instead, he denies it. He says, neither. Uh, but his condition is such that God will be glorified through this, what he's been given. And he heals him and God is glorified. And we're talking about it today. So again, Jesus is always right. Um, he has two other opportunities to affirm it. In this case, not necessarily in terms of a physical issue, but um, one, it was a, a natural disaster um, where a tower fell on people. And uh, he was in, I asked again, you know, what did they do to cause this terrible thing to happen to them? Again, Jesus denies that they did anything. The other one was a man-made disaster, and that was the, a group of people who were slaughtered. So in, in the, the three biggies that happen to human beings, one is sort of physical things that happen to us, natural disasters, man-made disasters. In every case, there's something within us that wants to go, what did you do that made God do that? Hmm. And in every case, Jesus denies that there is this cause and effect. And, yeah. and in fact, if anything, Jesus proves the opposite of cause and effect in the way he treats people because he comes upon a woman caught in adultery. He should have condemned her. Instead, he stands in front of his of her accusers and puts an end to this sort of death penalty moment. Um, Zacchaeus should be, you know, vilified for what he did. Instead, he has a dinner with him, and on and on and on. Every at every turn, Jesus is is shredding these old narratives about how God acts or interacts with human beings. That's why Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And of course, that's a big problem for us, Casey, is that we've got, in many cases in American Christianity, a trinity that's at odds with each other. You've got a mean, angry dad. 
Jesus takes the blame. And so we've got, we've got something to work on. Yeah, it's, it puts you to a place where you sort of choose your team. Are you on team Jesus? Are you on team God? Are you team Holy Spirit? And, and not only is that contrary to the history of the church, um, it's just contrary to the nature of God himself. And what I love about—one of the interesting things I find about you, and this is part of the intro to the podcast today, is you spend a lot of your time teaching in the classroom— uh, but you also spend a great deal of time uh, in the local church, especially there in Wichita, a particular Methodist church that you serve. And I've always known you to, your writing has reflected that scholarly side, but also that pastoral winsomeness. So as you're, as you're having this discussion with, whether it's college freshmen or whether it's people at, at your church— how do you sense people taking this idea of true narratives and false narratives and actually bringing it into their marketplace, their homes where they're raising their kids, their dorms? How is that translating into wisdom in their everyday life? Well, the first thing is that I was very surprised at how, at how much people would really like that, that framing. Um, I had no idea it was going to resonate so well with people. And then I eventually discovered why. And, and that is because if you put like a true and a false narrative, let's say false narrative, God is an angry judge who's poised to punish us. True narrative, God is a loving father who welcomes even us in our brokenness. Whatever. Um, when I state those two things, I'm not accusatory of anybody. I'm just saying, here's a couple of positions. What do you think? Where do you stand? So um, pedagogically, it becomes a very gentle way to instruct because if I say, hey, Casey, I, th- I think you have some wrong ideas. Immediately, you're on the defensive. You're thinking, hey, whoa, whoa, let me, whoa. But if I say, hey, Casey, have you ever thought about, like, like, maybe God's against us? Have you ever thought, after you do something really well, that, gee, is God going to bless me? Hmm. Or you do something really bad and you wonder, is God going to get me? Um, if I phrase it that way, then you can gent- gently enter into the discussion. So that's what I found was was fascinating was that uh, people really like the true and false narratives because it's not in your face. It lets you, I mean, the most common thing I've heard from people who've gone through the Apprentice series is this, you name narratives I didn't know I had. In other words, it, it was back there in my mind, but I, until you named it, but I didn't name it like, hey, you're wrong. I just said, Here's a common Christian error that we have. And people could go, hmm, is that me? And then maybe own up to it. So it was a purely accidental moment of genius. <laughs> and those are the best. They are, yeah. They don't happen nearly as often enough, though. No. I really could use that. Well, that that's interesting because it leads me to one to a book of yours that I've I enjoyed tremendously, which is uh, the book the book on Colossians three called Hidden in Christ, and that text really gets I think it exemplifies what you're talking about because if you don't know if you're listening you've never read Colossians three I would encourage you to do that, but it starts there's a piece at the beginning about putting things to death, mortifying things, cutting them off. And then there's a piece at the end about putting on, clothing yourselves. And it's almost a picture of God going after the bad stuff and God telling you to do the good stuff. But one of the things that I think is critical in the middle of that is something I've heard you talk about before, which is to do either of, to do, to step into that and be obedient to either of those things 
is, you know, both the putting to death and the putting on is about vision. So you've always talked about, you know, if you want to change, you have to work at the level of vision. And that's, that comes from, uh, we've heard that from Dallas Willard before a lot. Uh, for you, though, what's the intersection between vision and wisdom? Between vision and actually taking in that Dallas definition of wisdom and putting it into practice, what's the where does vision and wisdom meet in the like in an everyday yeah. life? Well, I, I think it, it meets in terms of identity because what Paul was the master of doing was was describing the reality of who we are in Christ, and then moving toward behavioral change. So, for example. In Colossians 3, 1 through 4, in four verses, he is describing who we are in Christ. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's a vision. Hmm. That's, it's also aligned with reality. Paul's not, it's not Pollyanna, think yourself into happiness. It's a reality that I am ontologically, by virtue of putting my confidence in Jesus, I have now become an all-new person. I'm Christ-inhabited. I have stepped into life in the kingdom. And so what Paul is so good about is is he always does identity before he does behavior. Let me stop you there for a second. Uh, For for the folks who are listening, uh, help them understand what you mean by ontological. Oh, the nature of being. Who I am, right? So my dog, Winston, I talk a lot about Winston. I love my dog. You know this, Casey. Winston's awesome, by the he way. He's awesome. Uh, Winston is ontologically a dog. He, is, he cannot be other. That is who he is. And um, so when we talk about ontology, uh, if I'm going to understand Winston, I have to understand what a dog is. And so uh, when it comes to being a Christian, I have to understand ontologically what a Christian is. And that is a human being made in God's image, Genesis 1.26, or made in God's image and likeness. But that's been marred and broken. But in Christ, it's been restored. So now we're, we're new people with new capacities. And so what Paul does in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, is to say, now this is who you are. Mm-hmm. Once you understand who you are, then you can say, and now this is how you live. Yeah. So when you get to verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore. He saw, we never see the word therefore. You always have to ask, what's the, what's the word therefore, therefore? Yeah. <laughs> therefore is there because something before it is, is hinging to something in front of it. So therefore is a, is a connecting thing. So because of this idea, you're a new creation in Christ. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. And he begins with the put to death things, as you noted, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Why? Because God's just a prude? No, because those are actually, um, the grain of the universe runs in a certain direction, and you can't fight it. You can't. So sexual immorality is always going to be harmful to the human person. It's never not going to be. Talk about wisdom, right? So um, if a person says, man, I, I really am looking forward to committing adultery. I think it's going to really be great for me. It never is. It never is, right? And so... Um, so there's a, there's a grain in which the universe runs. And if you try to run against it, you will harm yourself. So you get to, you get, so he, he names those things in period of lust. And then he says, you used to walk in these ways in, in the life you once lived because of these 
the wrath of God is coming. Now, Casey, wrath is a word that really throws Christians because wrath is like anger on steroids. So it's like God is so mad about this. But my definition of wrath is God letting the natural consequences of our sin do the harm that it does. Hmm. So, so God's wrath is not in a personally directed thing. I'm going to zap you. It's if you wanted to go against any of the Ten Commandments, if you want to have other gods before God, you want to steal, you want to not keep the set, whatever it is, uh, you're going against the grain of reality, and it will harm you. That's just the nature. So Paul says, this is who you are, so let's put to death these things, because this is harmful to you. It goes against the grain. And then eventually let's put on the things like compassion, kindness, humility, patience, love, and forgiveness. It turns out those things are always great. Those things always enhance human life. So again, that's the nature of the grain of, of reality. And that's just wisdom to learn how to step into it. Yeah. It's interesting, though, as you talk about this, and as I talk to people who believe, who've you know, been Christians for years, a lot of times we don't think about Jesus as being wise. Why, why is that? Why do we get to the place where we, we could see Jesus as miraculous as you know salvific you use a big word he's the he's the one who saves us he's the one who even as a teacher but there are very few people who would say you know what i think jesus was really really smart in a very practical way which is an, another way of saying wisdom why why is that why do we miss that about jesus i think because particularly 20th century evangelicalism has emphasized jesus as savior and so the way we frame the gospel is that we have a sin problem, whether it's personal or corporate, and we need that to be dealt with because that's what God really cares about is our sin problem, and Jesus becomes the solution to the sin problem. So Jesus' is Savior, I get. Jesus' is teacher, eh, not so much. Um, in fact, in some cases, people will dismiss his teaching. Uh, I, I'm, I'm routinely stunned at how few ministers even want to tackle the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Because they just, I have no idea where I'm going to go with that. I mean, you know, it's like Jesus is being way meaner than Moses, right? Moses said, don't kill. But Jesus says, don't be angry. Oh, my, how am I going to do that? So let's just steer away from that. But then let's keep Jesus as our Savior. I think it's eclipsed, the idea of him as teacher. And yet what's more valuable, as I think about people that, you know, I encounter in the church or in my own, you know, everyday life, I'm standing in line at the grocery store the guy next to me definitely might need to hear about Jesus as Savior, but in the next 15 to 20 minutes, what's going to change him the most is Jesus as teacher, whatever he's about to do, wherever he's about to go. And so, you know, I think about the single mom who's about to go to her second job of the day, try and provide for her family. How do we begin to speak some of the language that, and it, you know, it's funny, the first time I ever read any of your stuff, I, I looked at some of the people that you had connected with. So you have uh, Dallas Willard has been a, a big part of your life, Richard Foster, uh, Rich Mullins lived in your attic. So for some of us, that's just rock star status right there. Right there. Uh, but there's there's been a lot of wisdom that has circulated within your circles 
if I can say it that way, which sounds weird. <laughs> but you've, you've been exposed to a lot of wisdom. But then I also think on this other side, there are these folks who are about to step into this very gritty and practical situation. How do we take them into this space that I think Dallas and you and Richard and uh, have been creating for years and help them understand how, how the person of Jesus, now the teaching of Jesus, really engages with them in those very moment-to-moment gritty kind of spaces? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I like the word apprentice, uh, because um, the word disciple is a word, or discipleship is a word that's, I think, largely been lost to us today, because it's, begin, it's, it's sort of watered down to, I have a quiet time, maybe I'm in a Sunday school class, but my discipleship is defined by a few small activities. Apprenticeship, though, is a, a whole life understanding. It's sort of saying... Um, I'm learning how to live my life under the guidance of someone who really knows how to live it. Um, so, you know, apprenticeship is a very common thing in, in the trades world. For example, we had our house remodeled. I know you know this because uh, I wrote the forward to your book during my house remodel <laughs> and, and through the pain and suffering of that. But um, one of the, he was actually a framer, which are, those are the guys who come in and do all of the, after the, the demolition, the framers come in and rebuild the walls and stuff. <clears throat> and so this guy named Wes, who was our, our main framer, one day he said to me, do you mind if I have my apprentices work with me today? And of course, being who I am and having written a, you know, books on apprenticeship, I was like, absolutely, bring your apprentices. And so he brought, they were actually his sons. One was a stepson and one was a biological son. And he, he brought them in. And so just for fun, I watched and so I stood kind of in the corner and what he did was he would, he would explain to them, okay, this is, here's where we're putting this wall up. He, he went through all the dimensions and the explanations of why this, why they're load bearing, blah, blah, blah. And, and then he did it and then he's had them do it. And then he critiqued how they did it. That's apprenticeship. That's saying, you know, Jesus is the master. He knows life. So how am I going to take my life, my vocation, my parenting, my, marriage under his tutelage and say how would you do it jesus how let's how would you if you were in my space how would you be in my case a college professor a a parent a husband and so i take the the normal circumstances of life and invite jesus to be my my guide my master and i love that that phrase has always resonated with me is it's not what would jesus do but it's what would jesus do if he were me and because I think we get caught up in the, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus was, had far more capacity and power than we do in, in one sense. But in the other sense, it was come and learn how to do life as I would do it wherever you are. And, you know, the scriptures talk about how, you know, you're going to do far more miraculous things than I've ever done. Uh, I'm releasing you to do that. So there is some of it that's Go and do this and be like me where you're going to be. So, you know, if you live in Wichita, Kansas, or you live in Chicago, Illinois, wherever you might be, um, right now we're developing patients with bone-chilling cold. So that's the spiritual yeah. discipline we're going through here in Chicago. Right. So um, that's that's the power of it is it's being like Jesus where I am, which brings me to um, the most recent book you wrote and a concept that you can't read much of your stuff and not hear about, which is the idea of story. 
this book that's recently come out called The Magnificent Story, one of the lines in it that I've really enjoyed, and it's a simple line, but it just says, stories, and I'll misquote it so you can requote it correctly, um, we were meant to enter into stories. And I love that idea because I think narrative and story is, has been kind of a buzzword. People say, what's your story, telling your story, that sort of thing. But to say that stories are something we were meant to enter into, talk about that a little bit. What do you mean by the fact that stories are things that we're meant to enter into? Well, first of all, I mean, each of us are stories. So I, I, you know, if I get to know you, Casey, I may say, hey, what's your story? And by asking that question, uh, I, typically that means where are you from? Are you married? Do, where'd you go to school? Uh, what are your hobbies? And that's fine. But a deeper question, if I say, so Casey, what's your story is, what's the story that you're living into? Or what's the story that's, that's in a sense, running your life you, that you've stepped into? Because the stories in uh, stories are how we think are things like, who am I? Who is God? What's the good life? What's the meaning of it all? What happens after we die? All of those things are a part of a bigger story. And there's something within the human soul that longs for stepping into a big story, like an adventure. Um, we, we don't, our souls are massive. They're not made for little wimpy stories. We want, we want to be in something big. That's why we love Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and Indiana Jones. Those, we go and we watch those movies and we're transported into a, an adventure. And for, Two and a half hours or something. It's like, yes, I'm, I'm a part of this big thing. I'm, I'm being courageous and I'm fighting against the bad guys and all the things that we want because something in us is designed for a bigger story. So if I'm, so if I'm walking around right now, say I'm on a treadmill listening to this, and I'm thinking about my own personal story, and I don't have a sense of it as being that large. Uh, I have that longing that you're talking about, but I don't, I don't sense that my story is leading in that direction because I have a concept that in order to, to have the big story I'm dreaming about, there are things I have to change that can't change. Like I had this dream that my story was not me personally, but this is a you know, hypothetical. I had this dream that my story was going to include a husband and kids and in my recent divorce has sort of taken that story away or... Uh, I had a dream that my family was going to continue to expand, but I've, you know, we found out from a doctor that we can't do that. H- how does Jesus, how do you see Jesus coming and amending or beginning to rewrite those big stories that we long for and dream for? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we have to do, Casey, is, is ask, <clears throat> where does that story come from? Because um, a lot of times our stories are defined by, say, the American dream. Um, cultural narratives of success and what happiness looks like. So I think in, in one sense, we have to kind of step back and critique, you know, what is it that I'm expecting to happen here? And then the other thing I think in, in this is a great question you're raising is, um, you know, this is the story that I've been given right now. Okay. Your, your examples are, are excellent. This is where I am. What can God do now with my particular circumstances within this, because it's been my experience that God can take even very discouraging circumstances and turn them into something fantastic. Um, things that we you know, couldn't have dreamt. And, and let's be honest, frankly, a lot of times 
those those ways we anticipate the, what the good life is going to be like for us are actually not at all. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about our daughter. I mean, we didn't anticipate having a, a special needs child. That was not something that um, we saw coming. Uh, but when we were going through, you know, the, I think it was about maybe Madeline was a year old. And we were dealing with in-home nursing and our lives were disrupted. She was in and out of the hospital. Life as we knew it and expected it was not happening, right? It was a completely different thing. And um, someone gave me a poem by, uh, I may have to come back and tell you the name, but Emily Kingsley, I think, Emily Pearl Kingsley. And she's a woman who had a child with autism. She actually was uh, a writer for Sesame Street, but she wrote this, um, this little poem called Welcome to Holland. And in the, in the poem, she, she likens it to, you're so excited, you're ready to go to Italy, you've read your travel guides, you've got your tickets, everything's going, you're excited. And, and as your plane's about to land, the, the pilot says, sorry, folks, we've been rerouted, you're not going to Italy, you're going to Holland. And now you have to go, wait a minute, I, that wasn't my plan, I wasn't planning on going to Holland. And so she likens that to having, in, in this case, a, a child that you didn't expect to have, right? And so now you're in Holland. Okay, now you're going to have to let the dream of Italy die because that's mm -hmm. not going to happen. You didn't go to get uh, that. That wasn't your in the cards for you. But you're in Holland, so what? Do you, what can you? What you can? There's windmills and there's you know these wooden shoes and there's these tulips and all of these other things. So she talks about learning how to appreciate Holland in a sense, and then, and also recognizing that all your other friends who did go to Italy, right, they had normal kids doing the normal stuff. That's what they got. You didn't get that. And um, it, 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 I found, both Megan and I found that very comforting because we thought, yeah, we didn't, we, we thought we were going to Italy. <laughs> we thought, you know, we thought, like with our son, Jacob, you know, he's, Jacob was a few years older than, than Madeline, and he was perfectly healthy, and now he's a 25-year-old, guy with a beard, you know, uh, living life and, and doing great work. And he lived kind of the life we expected for a child. Madeline didn't. She lived a short life. And, um, but, and I'm grateful for Holland because I learned things. I experienced a part of life. And, and I, I think that's true for probably a lot of people listening out there. It's like, I didn't think that's where my life was going, but yeah. that's where it went. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. If if I can, I'd love to get that that poem. Find the a way to get that to our folks. You know, we we can take care of that at the end if we want. But because um, I think there are a lot of people in that spot. So for for the to kind of close up our discussion, if you had to give someone one very practical step they could take today to pursue this wise way of being an apprentice of Jesus. Where would they begin? If I'm a person who's like, man, I love everything you said. I want the big story. I, 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 I'm seeing what you're saying about narratives. I realize I got to change that. Or I've got to let God tell a different story about himself to me and just begin to receive that. What's the thing I could do today to begin to embrace that kind of journey? Well, I would say first and foremost would be to... Um, spend time reflecting on the person of Jesus through the gospels. Um, my, one of my favorite uh, authors is a guy named Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is just fun to say. 
It's a cool name. When your name is Jim Smith, every, every name is cool. <laughs> but uh, Hansers von Balthasar talks about he calls it contemplating the Christ form. And for him, what that means is taking a passage of the Gospels and really staying with it. It isn't Lexio Divina, for those listeners who know what that is. That's reading a passage over and over, listening to a word or phrase for you. That's wonderful. But contemplating the Christ form is is in a sense entering into the scripture, like seeing it. I mentioned like Zacchaeus. So let's say the Z- Zacchaeus story. I mean, really trying to, you know, imagine Jesus coming down the road, imagine the crowds, imagine this guy climbing up into a tree, see it happen, see Jesus speak to Zacchaeus and then say, hey, Zacchaeus, let's have dinner at your place tonight and, and, and sort of enter into that. Because what Balthazar said about contemplating the Christ form is that you're going to see the beauty and the goodness and the truth of, of God in the, in the actions and words, the behaviors of Jesus. And then to me, that, that's the most powerful practice because you walk away going, wow. I mean, that is, he was unexpected. He, I never saw that coming. Uh, so I, I think contemplating the Christ form is a, is a, it's, it's not too challenging either. You can, I mean, children can do it, right? Because you just have a little imagination here. Read a passage and kind of see it, smell it, hear it, engage in it. That's excellent. That's a great first step. So right now, the, the Magnificent Story is out. We've been talking about a couple of, there's, you write in trilogies now. You have been inspired by Star Wars. I can see it. <laughs> that's right. I hadn't thought about that. So we have the Magnificent Story that's out. And then what, what's coming next? Uh, the Force Awakens. Ah, very um, nice. The Return of the Jedi. No, no. Um, <laughs> Is J.J. Abrams writing your books for you? That'd right, be fantastic. That's right. Uh, Magnificent Story yeah, came out last August. Uh, next fall will be The Magnificent Journey. And then probably in 2019, we'll be repackaging The Apprentice series because it'll be the 10th anniversary for Good and Beautiful God. And then in 2020, which is a nice for 2020, is The Magnificent Mission. So... Yeah, trilogies. Yeah, well, I could I could recommend your uh, writing very very highly. It's been very influential for me, and also uh, part of what Jim has started is something called the Apprentice Institute. So uh, this coming October, if any of you uh, are looking for a conference to go to that deals in the areas of formation. Um, I have been every year since the apprentice gathering started, and that means I get a gold star in heaven. I think um, that's a, salvation. Yeah, that's a good narrative right there. Yeah, it so, is. Uh, so I would welcome you to uh, explore that. Just Google the apprentice gathering, and you'll find more information on that. But it's a fantastic venue to just be encouraged in this in this kind of walk that we're talking about—the walk of wisdom, the walk of apprenticeship. So, Jim, my friend, thanks for being on. Thanks, Casey. It's been fun. Again, that was Jim Smith, uh, James Bryan Smith. Man, I love that guy. Um, really good stuff. Uh, check out on Amazon his book, The Magnificent Story or The Apprentice Series. It's well worth your time. Uh, also, The Apprentice Gathering. If you go to theapprenticegathering.org, you can find information about uh, signing up, registering. I'll be there this year. I would love to meet some of you. If you're listening to this and you have some time, you want to travel out to beautiful Wichita in October. It it really is incredible. Um, Great speakers. You'll find those uh, on the website as well. Uh, So thanks for joining us. Again, if you would review 
this on iTunes. Uh, give it a rating. Give it a share. Uh, send it to some people you might know. I'm going to continue to try and uh, bring some great folks to you, some great content to you. So I'm looking forward to the next time. Peace.